Welcome to another 4 Minutes of Threads episode. Our last one ended with the rescue team digging their way down into the bunker beneath Sheffield's collapsed town hall. They break through the rubble and debris and shine their torches through the gloom to find everyone dead, suffocated. So let's pick up the story from there. But before I do, let me thank everyone who pre-orders a copy of my book last week. I mentioned it, of course, on last week's pod, saying that you could now pre-order it, and I would be obviously delighted if you would. Well, so many of you did that it pushed me into the bestseller list. For two days, two whole days, Amazon gave my book a bestseller tag, and I was so happy. Pre-ordering really does make a difference in terms of building up hype about a book and demonstrating interest to the publisher and to booksellers. So a huge thank you to everyone who has pre-ordered. And a reminder, if it's not too cheeky, that my book is out on 6th of April. You can pre-order it now from any book website. And it's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. Now let's get back to threads. After the silence and the murk of the buried bunker, we move above ground, but not exactly to light and fresh air. We see the exterior of Ruth's house, but the street looks just as dark and choked as the bunker did. The sky is a dark, filthy grey, and a fog is drifting through the streets. Now, this fog uh, could represent fallout, it could represent just general filth and dirt. It could be literal dust from the smashed and destroyed city. Overall, the scene looks like something Dickensian. Filth and squalor and decay. Ruth's big Victorian house is ruined and crooked, and the drifting mist makes it seem that Jack the Ripper or some other villain is going to come around the corner. So this scene of the big crooked house looming out of the gloom is almost a cliché of uh, misery. As I said, it could come straight from Dickens, but we remember that nuclear war, or the threat of it, is real. Houses would be ruined and crooked. The streets would be grey and filthy. There would be despair. There would be ruin. All that misery would be real. And not in the crinkled pages of a Dickens novel, but here and now, outside your window. Speaking of Dickensian squalor, things are even worse inside the house. Ruth has finished her dreadful walk around the city and has arrived back home, back where she started from. Well, Ruth, you should not have gone in there. The urge to go home and the Fragile hope that you might find your family still alive there was too strong and so she enters the house and she finds rats and death. Her poor gran lies dead, bundled up in a blanket which is being nudged and nibbled at by rats and her parents have been bludgeoned to death in the basement. You should not have gone in there, Ruth. It reminds me of a scene from the novel On the Beach. 
I can't remember if it appears in the film, but certainly it's in the book and has always stuck in my mind. If you're unfamiliar with the story, let me give you a quick recap of this scene. Um, a nuclear war, of course, has, has devastated the North. But for now, the Southern Hemisphere is untouched. An American submarine crew are in Australia and they detect a radio transmission coming from California. Someone is tapping out a message on Morse code from a station on the coast. Now, the message is garbled, it doesn't make any sense, but they think, well, maybe it's a civilian who doesn't know Morse code and is just tapping away randomly, hoping that someone somewhere will hear them. Well, this is big news. People might be alive in America after all. So the crew get in their sub and they journey up to the Californian coast. They can dodge the fallout, which has blanketed the Northern Hemisphere by remaining underwater for most of the time. Well, they arrive in California and they send a couple of sailors out to shore to check who is sending that Morse code. They sail to shore from the submarine, they'll check it out and they'll head back to the sub fast where they'll be decontaminated. They depart and when they get to shore they find that the tapping was nothing but a breeze coming in through a broken window. I can't remember the details exactly, but that's what was causing the tapping noise. So, no luck. There is no one left alive, as hoped. So, let's decontaminate and head back to Australia. Except, someone is missing from the party who went out to the coast. One of them hasn't come back for decontamination. It turns out he was a local lad. The town on the California coast was his home. And he could not resist the lure of going back, seeing his house, his garden, his old room, his parents, one last time. So he deserts. When he gets to the shore, he runs down the empty, contaminated streets and he seeks out his home. The submarine's commander, um, realising what's happened, brings the boat to the surface and speaks to him via a loudspeaker. Come back, they say. Come back. It's still okay. We can still decontaminate you. But no. He leaves. He's going home. He disappears. And then later, as the submarine is readying to go back to Australia, they call out to him one last time by loudspeaker, a farewell. And he says something back to them like, um, I just wanted to go home and see my folks, but I wish I hadn't looked. I wish I hadn't gone in there. And now, of course, the sub can't take him back. He's been ashore for too long. He's far beyond the help of a decontamination shower. So they need to leave him there. Leave him there as the last man left alive in America. With nothing to do but wander the streets of his old hometown. It's horrific. Now, I can't remember the exact quotes from the book, but that is the gist of it. The lure of home and of what was once cosy and familiar, it was just too strong to resist. Even though he must have known that he'd find nothing there but death. But the lure of home was just too strong. It reminds me also of a brilliant Ray Bradbury story from the Martian Chronicles, where three astronauts reach Mars, and when they land, they are 
overjoyed, overwhelmed, amazed and tearful to find it looks just like home. This red planet, well, it looks just like Earth. There are trees and parks and nice houses with well-kept gardens. In fact, it's so familiar that this house, well, it looks exactly like mine did when I was a kid. And isn't that mum standing by the door? Each of the astronauts who had landed expecting hostility and who were keen and alert and on their guard, they immediately fold. It's mum, mum who's been dead for 20 years. And look, it's my old house and my old rope swing in the garden. Each man finds his old house and finds that his mum and dad are there and that they've made dinner. And the lure of home causes each man to drop their guard and they each scatter for their old homes and their mums and dads. Of course, it turns out that the Martians were far more advanced than us and they knew that the best way to defeat the invader from Earth was not with guns or death rays, but with the lure of home. So Ruth can't resist the lure of home either, even though she must know that nothing good will be found there. And so it is. There is nothing in that house but death and rats and stink. This is the end of her journey. Now she knows that she'll never find Jimmy and now her parents have gone too. And now there is no such thing as home either. There is a ruined house with three corpses in it. But there is no home. But Ruth doesn't look too worried by the horror she finds in the house. There's no screaming and crying and wailing and cursing God. Her face remains cold and blank. I suppose this is disaster syndrome. Her mind is a cup and the cup has been filled to the brim with horror. So when this additional horror is poured into the cup, well, sorry, we're full. There's no room for more. She cannot take anything else. It just spills over, doesn't affect her. The only reaction we get from her is when she tries to enter the basement to find her parents. She walks down a step or two, then halts. We can hear from below a mad buzzing of flies. We know what's down there. Ruth covers her nose and retreats. In this scene, she is clutching a bundle to her chest. I suppose this foreshadows the baby she will soon have. Uh, We can assume this bundle is just stuff that she's acquired in her walk through the city. Bits of this and that which might be useful. Whatever is in that bundle, it's really all she has in the world now. And she clutches it tight to her chest. Maybe because the contents are precious. And maybe because she's already learned that other survivors, in their desperation, will try and grab it from her if she's not careful. The next scene is an image. It's a wall, cracked and pockmarked and splattered with blood. A man sits on a chair in front of the wall. His arms are held straight and close to his sides. It seems he's tied to the chair. 
Yes, he's there to be executed. He's in front of what we assume is a firing squad. Or maybe these days they can't stretch to a firing squad. Maybe it's just one guy with a gun. As the camera pulls back, we see that the pop marks in the wall are, of course, bullet holes. So this is obviously some kind of execution chamber. And we have talked before in the podcast about law and order after nuclear war and how the British authorities would be forced to create new types of punishment, or rather, reverts to old types of punishment. Because things like uh, community service, or fines, or a jail sentence won't mean anything anymore. Indeed, a jail sentence might have become a desirable thing, as it would mean the state being obliged to feed and house you and basically look after you. So here we are, the death penalty is back in Britain and the still image comes to life. The guy who, it does seem that he's tied to the chair, is shot and he and the chair tip to one side and fall over. As his shooting occurs, a soldier stands to one side and he's manhandling another guy, struggling with him, trying to pull his jumper off. Now, this suggests that the executions are happening frequently, so frequently, in fact, that the soldier hardly flinches when the gun goes off. And neither does he feel the need to step out of the way or deal with this other prisoner in another room. No, it seems this other guy is being prepped for execution just feet away from the current victim. In Britain, when we still had the death penalty, it was abolished, of course, in the 60s, care was taken in the early 20th century to conceal the gallows from the condemned man or woman. The condemned cell would have had a door in it which led directly to the execution chamber. But this door would be concealed by a cabinet or a wardrobe or something. Then, on the morning of the hanging the door would be revealed and the executioner and his assistants would enter the cell, tie the arms of the person being executed and lead them quickly through that previously concealed door. They would be placed on the trapdoor, at which point their legs would also be tied and a hood placed over the head. The assistant would briskly step off the trapdoor, the lever would be pulled and the person would plunge through the floor And if all the weighing and measuring had been done correctly, their neck would be neatly snapped and death would be mercifully quick. So there is no, um, as we often see in films, uh, particularly American ones, walk of a condemned man along the corridors of the jail. In Britain, in the cases I've read about, it was done very quickly. The walk from the condemned cell to the trapdoor was... uh, a matter of a few steps. It was done very quickly. Uh, Britain's most famous hangman, Albert Pierpoint, claimed that he could light a pipe and then enter the condemned cell, begin the procedure, execute the condemned and get back to his pipe, which would still be alight and smouldering nicely waiting for him. My point is, executions had become in Britain in the first half of the 20th century, as quick and as merciful as it was possible to be. 
Of course, sometimes it all went wrong. Read about the terrible case of poor Edith Thompson to see what happens in those awful cases. But there were efforts at least to make it quick. But in Threads, we see that all of that has been discarded. There is no attempt to make it quick for the condemned person. There is no care to hide the door to the condemned cell and to take weights and measurements to ensure a quick death. No, it's just sit down there and we shoot you. And as for the guy who's next in line for shooting, yes, he's actually in the room whilst the execution of the other guy happens. Now, that is horrific, that is cruel, that is almost a form of torture to allow the other guy to see what terrible fate is waiting for him. To actually smell the fresh blood as it trickles down the wall. He won't be able to smell his own blood, of course, but he can certainly smell the blood of those who've gone before him. So all of this tells me that executions are happening so frequently that any rules or decency have gone right out the window. Couple this with any disaster syndrome that the soldiers themselves might be feeling or suffering. And we can see that, like Ruth, they simply don't react anymore to horror. They've seen too much and have probably gone cold and hard. But even though our soldiers might be emotionless, in this scene, when the shots ring out and they execute the guy strapped to the chair, the other man, the one who's awaiting his own execution, starts to struggle against a soldier when he hears those shots. So even if he too is deadened to feeling and emotion by disaster syndrome, the sound of shots and the thought of his imminent death can still pierce that disaster syndrome and kick up panic and distress. The scene ends with that wall again. More shots, more gouges in the stonework, more blood running down the wall. We are now five weeks after the attack. Now, five weeks is a short space of time, and look how quickly we've reverted to barbarism. The text on screen tells us no electricity, no mains water, no sanitation. So here we are with yet more horrors to contend with. It's not just violence and starvation and a state which has awarded itself the right to execute us. Now we also need to worry about the old concerns which the 20th century had supposedly solved. Cleanliness, clean water, disease. The scene moves to the moors above Sheffield. Hordes of people are, um, I was going to say fleeing the city, but no one is in any fit state to flee. Instead, they are limping and hobbling and dragging themselves out of the city. We can see that some of them are wheeling bikes across the moor, and two others are pulling a pram behind them, anything to which you can attach or pile your belongings. Everyone thinks of uh, the road, uh, where the father and son are famously pushing a shopping trolley across a wasteland. Well, Threads got there first, with bikes and prams. One of the bikes has bags slung around its handlebars. The people are bundled up in duffel coats. Everything is gloomy and dark and cold. It's July, says the narrator. A growing exodus from cities in search of food. 
It's July. The countryside is cold and full of unknown radiation hazards. By now, five to six weeks after the attack, deaths from the effects of fallout are approaching their peak. man on the ground and someone is dragging at his arm and it's not clear to me what's happening here. Either he has given up, uh, collapsed on the moor and his partner is trying to force him to walk, make him stand up. Or are they stealing from him? Whoever this person is, they seem to be tugging at his arm but are they grabbing something from his hand? Are they pinching his watch or a ring to maybe trade it for something? If you pause the film, this person does seem to be focused on this guy's wrist or hand. It does look to me like <laughs> like a mugging. It's not clear to me, so let me know what you think. Are they trying to drag this poor guy to his feet? Or are they trying to rob him as he lies dying on the moor? Whether they are helping or mugging this man, <laughs> no one cares. Everyone else is just plodding across the moor, trying to escape Sheffield. No one would care if the person next to them was being murdered or had suddenly sprouted two heads. Again, it's disaster syndrome. Everyone's cups are full. As the crowds make their way across the moor, some of them drop to the ground. Some of them die and they will just lie there. The crowd moves on. No one stops to help. No one cares. Some of them stumble, some of them vomit, some of them retch, collapse. Ruth is amongst this crowd of refugees. She breaks away from the crowd and shelters beneath a rock where she breaks and gouges at an icy puddle or perhaps a stream. She gouges at the ice and breaks it with a rock and drinks the cold water that lies beneath. Now, you'd have to be very thirsty to do that, of course, but... Even so, as she bends her mouth to the water, she hesitates. So there's obviously an unpleasant smell coming from the water. An unpleasant smell or sight. Something gives her pause. But then thirst takes over and she ducks her head down and drinks it anyway. Drinks dirty water. Having had a drink, she then takes a tin out of a paper bag. This was probably the bag she was seen earlier clutching tight to her chest. So it contains food then, the most precious thing after water. So here on the freezing July moor, she stops to attend to the two crucial things, a drink and some food. We saw her crack the frozen stream with a rock and now we see her eat. Well, she attempts it. She has a tin of Bachelor's Bigger Peas, but she has no tin opener. <laughs> Remember our man in the anti-war protest earlier? He was trying to flog tin openers to the crowd. I bet she wishes now that she'd grabbed one. She has to use a rock, again, to bash the tin open. And yes, she obviously looks very primitive here. She's bundled up in a filthy, shapeless coat, and she's crouching in the wilderness, using a rock as a tool. It couldn't be more obvious that humanity is regressing. 
As she hammers at the tin, an aeroplane swoops low over the moor, shouting orders through a loudspeaker. Here's a clip. Now, that's a laugh. Return it to your homes. What homes? Another example, then, of civil defence planning butting up against reality. The crowd seem enraged by the plane. The figures on the moor, who can only be seen in silhouettes against the gloomy skyline, they shout and they seem to shake their fists at the plane. This might be an example of something we've discussed before in the podcast. An example of the surviving population, venting their rage at authority. Anyone, whether it's a soldier or a policeman or, in the example I found in the archives, of paramedics, anyone who appears in uniform might be subject to anger as they will be seen as representing authority. And it's authority who got us into this mess. Now, why would the plane be ordering people to turn back to Sheffield. I suppose it's because you want to confine your problem to one place. The residents of Sheffield might be irradiated and homeless and starving and brutalised. But things might be a bit better in, for example, nearby Buxton. So you might want to try and Avoid Buxton being overrun with thousands of these refugees who might steal and loot and spread disease and overload whatever food stocks or medical services still exist. But of course, there is no way, no way to get this crowd to return to Sheffield. How can you compel them? How can you force them? What punishment can you devise which is worse than being sent back into the ruins of Sheffield? The plane which we see flying low over the moor is a Scottish aviation bulldog, a little two-seater training plane, and Ruth glances up at the plane but doesn't seem too bothered by it as she's busy indulging in the greatest of delights. She has food. She has managed to crack the tin of peas open and is drinking from it like it's a can of coke. Mmm, lovely green, cold, watery pea juice. Our next scene is set in Buxton, a nearby town. It's a still image, a black and white image, and it shows us the town's famous Buxton Crescent, which is an elegant curved building which was built for the 5th Duke of Devonshire and is now a fancy five-star hotel. Interestingly, Buxton Crescent is beside the famous uh, spring, St Anne's Well, where warm spring water can be found. Now, this would, of course, be hugely useful when the taps are run dry and the sewage system doesn't work anymore and clean drinking water is hard to come by. So maybe this is why the film pictures crowds gathered at Buxton Crescent. Are they queuing there to try and get some water from the spring. 
the next image we see, another black and white image from Buxton, does indeed suggest that they have formed a queue. They are all wrapped in something, uh, sheets, blankets, coats, and they seem to be standing, huddled and cold, in a line. Now, the spring water from Buxton is famous. It's been valued for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, You can even buy a bottle right now in the shops. Buxton Mineral Water is um, owned and sold by the Nestle Company. So I'm assuming that our queue is for spring water from the famous well. Indeed, the image, the second image, which shows that the crowd's queuing, is pictured outside Buxton's Opera House. And I looked it up in Google Street View, and that shows me that the Opera House is on, or directly beside, Water Street, which leads up to the drinking fountain. So I think Threads is definitely telling us that the crowd here have amassed in hope of some clean water from the well. And it is quite unsettling to see that image of the crowd gathered outside the Opera House. They are, as I said, swaddled in blankets, and the queue underneath signs saying dress circle, upper circle, private boxes. And we think that in another life, they might be waiting there for a show. And the blankets they're wrapped in might be chiffon scarves and satin wrappers. Everyone togged up for a night at the opera house. So the juxtaposition between elegance and brutality here is so sharp. It reminds me of a scene in the road. One of the worst, maybe the worst scene. Uh, You'll know the one I mean if you've read it. Where the father and son find an elegant southern mansion. An old plantation house. Now ruined of course, but there are ghostly reminders of its former grandeur. And the so-called civilised living it was once host to. And then... A terrible, terrible thing happens in there. Amongst all that old world elegance. Our final scene before the four minutes ends uh, shows a policeman who is very brisk and efficient, no time for anyone's nonsense, and he's pounding the streets with a clipboard with a queue of refugees following behind him. These are our refugees from Sheffield who have now arrived in what we assume is Buxton. Buxton, of course, has been damaged, but nowhere near as badly as Sheffield. There are still habitable houses. And so the policeman is banging on doors, consulting records which show that the homeowner may have spare rooms. And if so, he will be obliged to take refugees. The refugees are, of course, filthy. They are also mainly adults. And we know from reading about the evacuation scheme in Britain during the war that um, there were homeowners who were annoyed at having to take in children. And there were complaints that some of the children who came from urban poverty arrived dirty and with bad or non-existent table manners and seemed quite savage. So we can assume that this annoyance would be cranked up to the max having to open your home to dirty, stinking, starving, traumatised, mentally scarred adults. And certainly one of the homeowners isn't happy. The policeman approaches his door, but he has assembled a 
a clunky, clumsy barricade of furniture around his house. And he has written, keep off, in white paint on his door. Now, the building of the barricades might have been done before the bomb dropped, in accordance with uh, protect and survive guidance about fortifying your home. Nonetheless, his message is clear. Don't bother me. But the policeman tosses some of his barricade aside and hammers on the door. Here's a clip. George Langley. Yes, what do you want? You've been designated for temporary I'm having no strangers coming to live here. Look, you've no choice in the matter. It's law under the new emergency regulations. I don't care what it is. This is my house and I'm having no strangers in it. Look, according to my records, you've got four spare rooms. Ah, kitchen, no bathroom... and spare and all. They can't just come here and walk into people's houses. It's not right. Look, we're not here to argue the rights and wrongs of the matter. Besides, right, you four. it's One, bloody two, dangerous. Three, they might three, bring all sorts of diseases four. with them. Come on, in you go. They might be contaminated. In you go. Well, look at him. Look at him. I look at him. Go on. Go on, go. Right, number 19. Of course, no one wants to lose their home or to have to, against their will, open it to strangers. But we see that he is being forced to here under civil defence rules. Of course, Protect and Survive, um, which which would have been in action when threads happened, was all about the safety and supposed sanctity of the home. Stay at home. Your home is where you'll be safe. You are better off in your own home. They were so keen to get the message across that you should stay at home, that they almost issued a subtle threat, saying if you leave your home, your local authority might take it over for homeless refugees. You will lose the safety of your home. But here, in Threads, we see that this guy has um, obeyed the rules, he has stayed in his own home, and yet he's still effectively losing it by having to throw the door open and allow a big mob of refugees in. So even if you... Play nice, play by the rules and protect and survive. The government, in the form of this policeman, can still bang the door and insist that you throw open the door and let others in. You don't have any control anymore over your home. So your home is yours. Build it up, fortify it, stockpile the kitchen. It's the only place you have any hope of being safe, if you believe protect and survive. It is yours... Until, bang, 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 the policeman comes to the door. So that is the end of our four minutes. Uh, Quite a long one this week. Obviously lots happening in the film. So I hope you've enjoyed it. And let me thank my new patrons, Tim Davidson and Carolina Siles. And just a reminder again that you can now pre-order my book on any book website. Just search for Attack Warning Red... How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War by me, Julie McDowell. So thank you all for listening and I'll be back on Monday.